Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. John, we're continuing our series set apart for the gospel. Yeah. In fact, today's message is called The Progress of the Gospel. So give us a sense of what you're going to be talking about. Well, Romans 9 to 11 has all those difficult concepts, predestination, God's sovereign choice, all of that stuff. Um, and, you know, it kind of divides Christians. But I think we need to just commit ourselves to the Scripture, allow the Scripture to say what it does. Uh, but it does have some fascinating things to say about God's work in bringing us to Him. It's yeah. really amazing. Yeah. yeah. And when we talk about the progress of the gospel, you're really going to be talking about how God set up the opportunity for the world to hear of Christ. Yeah, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles yeah. and how the, the history of Israel and the twists and turns brought the gospel to us. It's an amazing study. Fantastic, we look forward to it. And join us in just a couple of minutes right here on Truth and Life Today. In 1859, Charles Dickens released a novel which was to become one of the great English-speaking novels in history. Uh, it's the story, The Tale of Two Cities, and it uh, centers around the events in London and in Paris. Those are the two cities uh, that it talks about. It's, it's about the Jacobian reign of terror during the French Revolution. And even if you've never read the book, and even if you know nothing about what the book is about, I'll bet you have heard the first lines of the book quoted. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. That's great opening lines, and it's kind of made its way into all sorts of uh, popular English usage. But those lines not only describe the time of the French Revolution, they really do describe the era or the epoch from the time of the death and resurrection of Jesus all the way to the present time. If you think about the life of the church, it is the best of times and it is the worst of times at the same time. I mean, it's the worst of times because in the era in which we live, uh, we know that persecution is on the rise in countries all over the world. There are all sorts of persecution watch lists that are produced in which it, it, we, sh we see that, that the persecution of the church is rising in, in countries that we never knew were persecuting the church before. But it's also the worst of times in this sense that there is so much internal scandal in the church at the same time. But it is the best of times because in the day in which we're living, the Christian church has advanced and the gospel is being heard in more countries and by more people than ever before. Uh, but that shouldn't surprise us. Let me quote to you from Jesus uh, in Matthew. And here he says in Matthew, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. <laughs> you know, there you have the best of times. The gospel will grow exponentially in the face of persecution and in the face of false teaching and in the face of falling away. 
When we come to Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, we come to a section of scripture that tells us how it is that the gospel advances. You know, we've been studying the book of Romans in big hunks. We've looked at chapters one to four, which I've called the heart of the gospel, and Romans five to eight, which I've called the power of the gospel. But now in Romans nine to 11, it is this progress of the gospel or how it is that the gospel continues to grow in the world. And as you think about Romans nine to 11, uh, you might think that these are among the most controversial chapters in the entire Bible. There are a lot of people that have a difficulty reading it. I've known of many pastors that preach up to Romans chapter eight, never get to chapter nine, because they know it's going to be controversial when they preach it. But let's have a look at this section of scripture, which is so important to know. Now, I, I think the best way to introduce it is just to read a couple of texts from this section. Romans chapter nine and verse 11 says, though they were not yet born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Now, there's the controversial word, it's called election. Uh, then if I look a couple of verses later, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, so what depends? The mercy of God, the salvation of sinners, does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, there's the controversy. The word election and then the salvation of the lost depends entirely on the mercy of God and not on human will. Uh, that's what got a lot of us in difficulty over these passages. We just can't understand how that can be so. So let me begin by giving you a definition of election and then we'll get back into this text. See, many of us, when we think about how it is that we came to know Jesus, we think about going into an election booth in which there are a whole list of possibilities about how we might live our lives. You know, I, I might live for God, I might live for pleasure, I might live for, you know, business and money, I might live for personal fame or, you know, or a number of different ways in which we think life is possible. So we make a decision, those of us who have decided before God will say, that's the box that I ticked in the election booth. But Romans 9 to 11 seems to turn all of that around. It's not we who are entering into the election booth. In Romans 9 to 11, it's God that's entering into the election booth and before him are the names of all that he's ever created and God chooses or elects his own. Well, the minute we hear that, it's like an anvil that hits us on the head and say, that doesn't sound fair. How does God have the right to simply choose people apart from any of their will or exertion? And yet that's what seems to be what Romans 9 to 11 uh, teaches us. So we're gonna have to look at this passage in great detail and find out the flow of thinking and what it is that Paul says is this progress of the gospel, how it is that God chooses his own and allows his gospel to, to prevail and what that has to do with human choice. So we're gonna talk about Romans 9 to 11, perhaps in a way that you've never heard of it spoken before, but I will introduce you to thoughts that the scripture teaches us quite plainly about God's work in our salvation. Romans chapter nine to 11 presents us with a problem of Israel. Uh, let me begin by reading Romans chapter nine, verse four. 
It says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ or the Messiah, who is God over all, forever blessed. Amen. Now, what Paul begins by saying in Romans chapter 9 is that the history of redemption, that the history of bringing salvation to the world belongs to Israel. God chose Israel specially among all the nations of the earth and gave them promises that were not given to any nation in the world. And then he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. See, in Paul's day, many of the Israelites were rejecting their own Messiah, even while the Gentiles were accepting him. What gives rise to that? And then he goes on to say, well, listen to this. He says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's Romans 9, verse 6. That sounds strange to us. So Paul is saying that there are two definitions of Israel. There's one is Israel as the chosen race, as a, as a people group of one genetic background. And then there's another choosing of Israel as the special and chosen people of God. Let me, let me explain that. Paul gives two examples. One is, well, I guess positive and the other is negative. The positive one has to do with the, with the relationship between Jacob and his twin brother Esau. Now, Paul says that God chose Jacob over Esau, and that's interesting. You know, Esau was the oldest of the two, and yet God chose the younger. Now, in our world, that doesn't mean a whole awful lot, but in the ancient world, the oldest always received the inheritance. And what Paul is saying here is, it doesn't work that way with God. God will give his inheritance to whomever he chooses. And then something else happens in this chapter, and that's chapter 9 and verse 16, part of the verse I've already read. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then Paul writes, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now Paul's referring to something that happened in Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, something amazing did happen. Um, Moses comes to Pharaoh in Egypt and says, thus says the Lord God, let my people go. And Pharaoh responds, I'm not going to let the people of Israel go. They're just a slave race of people and there's no reason why I should worry about their God. You must be just the God of the slaves. And then in consequence of that, that standoff come these 10 series of plagues that utterly devastate the Egyptians. And what Paul is referring to is that very incident in which, as the Bible says in the book of Exodus over and over again, it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, Paul refers to that and says that the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to show my power in you. In other words, God allowed Pharaoh to become the most powerful king in the earth at his time period so that when the time came, God would devastate Pharaoh before the watching eyes of the world and demonstrate that he was the only true power. That was God's purpose in election in Pharaoh's life. When Pharaoh was devastated, the whole world would know that there is no God but this one God. That was God's purpose in election. In other words, God elected to destroy Pharaoh so that the maximum, maximum amount of people would come in to the saving news of Jesus. That's what God did. Now, when you finish Romans chapter 9, you might say, well then, if God chooses his own, 
then, you know, there's nothing for me to do. But when we get to Romans chapter 10, we read in verse 11 that the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, there's this this marvelous confluence of two factors in Romans 9 to 11. On the one hand, it is true that no one can come to Christ unless the Father chooses them and draws them to himself. But in Romans 10, we are told that every person has to come to terms with the call of God. You have to believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And there's an appeal that's being made. Everyone who believes will be saved. All you have to do is respond to the word of God. Now, I'm not going to work out all of the details of how both of those statements are true, that God elects his own, and yet every single individual has to make a choice. But both of those things are said very plainly in Romans 9 and in Romans 10. There is a calling of God, and there is at the same time a call for everyone to make a choice. Now then, if you continue to read in Romans chapter 10, we come to verse 14 where it says, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so in Romans chapter 10, there is the command of the church of Jesus Christ to send preachers and evangelists and Bible teachers and individuals who know the word of God to be able to declare the good news to everyone in the entire earth. So on the one hand, we have God chooses his own from eternity past. And on the other hand, we have the necessity of going out into all the world and preaching the gospel. That's Romans 9 and Romans 10. But what does that tell us? It tells us we need to continue to be active in sharing our faith. That's what it tells us. But it also tells us not to be afraid because God is already drawing his own unto himself. We won't fail in the Great Commission. We will be successful because God is already determined to choose his own elect. That's the good news. That's how the gospel progresses. It progresses as we send evangelists, and it progresses as God savingly draws his own unto himself. Now, when we get to Romans chapter 11, we're introduced to what we might call a great mystery. The mystery has everything in the world to do with how it's possible for Israel to reject the gospel and at the same time for the Gentiles to come in. So stay tuned, we have so much more to say. Remember that Romans 9 to 11 tells us how it is that the gospel progresses throughout the whole world. And I want to draw your attention to a very interesting passage, and it's in Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. Uh, It reads, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brother. So there's a mystery, and if you don't know what a a mystery is in the Bible, it's not something that's overly difficult to understand, but but it is something that we would never know unless God told it to us. So there's something that you and I would never discover on our own. Here it is. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So let me break that down. A partial hardening. You know, there are all sorts of people who belong to the ancient physical race of Israel who have come to be believers in Jesus Christ. Israel hasn't been shut out from the gospel. There are believers among the Jewish people. 
However, that hardening is partial and it will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So you might say, I, I don't actually get how those two issues are related to each other. How does the hardening of Israel relate to Gentiles coming in? So let me take you earlier on in this passage and I'm gonna take you all the way back to, to Romans chapter 11 and verse 11. Uh, Paul says, so I ask, did they stumble, that is Israel stumble, in order that they might fall? And then he writes, by no means, rather through their trespass, that is through the resistance of Israel to receive their savior. Through the, the rebellion of Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And you might say, how, how did that happen? I still don't get it. So let me trace it to back historically. Uh, we know that uh, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world in the center of the world, and the center of the world has always been Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center of the world because it's there where God sets his affections, and it's there that the history of the whole world is bound. In the end, when the Messiah returns, he will reign in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is, biblically speaking, the center of the world. That's where Christ died for the sins of the whole world. But then as the gospel began to be preached in Jerusalem, it set off a firestorm. There were those among the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who had urged the Romans to crucify Jesus. So, you know, really it, the, the crucifixion of Jesus is a combination of Jewish and Gentile forces conspiring together against the Savior of the whole world. Nonetheless, Christ is crucified there, and as the gospel gets to be preached, uh, Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified is Lord and Christ. And so immediately, the persecutors of Jesus are set on their heels. They begin to form a united front against the preaching of the Christian gospel. Eventually, persecution breaks out against the Christian church in Jerusalem and forces the church out of Jerusalem and into the Gentile world. Now, here's what Paul is saying. That series of events actually happened because of the foreordained, predetermined plan of God. God had decided in advance that it would be just like that because if the disciples had not been forced out of Jerusalem, they wouldn't have gone to the Gentiles. That was God's plan so that the maximum amount of Gentiles would hear. If you're a Gentile and you're listening to me and you've heard the good news of Jesus and you've come to believe in him, you ought to give thanks that the Christian church was persecuted in Jerusalem. That's what it says. Now, I want you to listen now to, to Romans chapter 11 and verse 19. It says, then you say branches were broken off. That is, Israel was broken off from the, from the tree of life. Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. Uh, in other words, God will treat you exactly as he does the Jewish people. There is no favoritism with God. God doesn't hold Jews more sinful than Gentiles or Gentiles more sinful than Jews. We are equally sinful before God and equally in need of his redemption. And yet within this unique plan of God, he predetermined that Israel would turn against their Messiah so that the maximum amount of Gentiles would come in. And then he says, but if he did that, watch this. If, he were to, if, if you were cut from what is a nat uh, by nature a wild olive tree, 
and grafted in, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? In other words, God still has a plan for Israel. Even after her rebellion against the Messiah, God determines that at some point in the future, he will graft Israel back in so that Israel and the Gentiles together will become one people of the Messiah. That's God's plan in advancing the gospel to the world. Now, I know it's technical, and I know there's a lot there, and I commend to you the study of Romans 9 to 11 because it's really a surprising uh, chapters in the scripture. It tells us how God is determined in advance to bring the gospel. But before I end this, I, I need to tell a little story. I remember years ago preaching from Romans 9 to 11, and I remember after I was done going home and saying to my wife, wow, I, I don't know why anyone would come back. I didn't think it was the best sermon I'd ever preached. But that day I got a note in the mail, and uh, it went this way. It was a Jewish man that had come into the service, and he was listening to what was being said. And he had always thought to himself, I can't be a Christian because I'm a Jew. And he said, for the first time, I recognize that the miracle is not when a Jew becomes a Christian. The miracle is when a Gentile becomes a Christian because the gospel belongs naturally to the Jewish people. And in this surprise move, God has brought the gospel to the Gentiles. See, that's the, the amazing thing about the good news of Jesus. It has come even to Gentiles. But while it came to Gentiles through the rebellion of the Jewish people, God has not rejected Israel and will draw them back. That's how God has planned to bring the gospel to the whole world. That's how we live in this the best and worst of times. We live in a day of great rebellion against the gospel, and yet we live in a day in which God is determined to maximize the amount of men and women who will come in. Well, thanks for joining us again with Truth and Life today with Dr. John. Uh, John, uh, a great, uh, great message today. But it is one of those things that's, that's difficult, yeah. uh, particularly when you take that large sum and the little bit of time you had and try and fold it out. But what is it you want people to go away with today? You know, Ben, I, I think what I want people to hear more than anything else is that the 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 reason you're saved is because of God. We, we take no credit for our own salvation. We look to God. I, don't, I didn't come to Christ because I was morally superior to someone who didn't. I didn't come to Christ because, you know, somehow I had a greater spiritual capacity than they did. I came to Christ because God had mercy on me. All glory goes to God, none goes to me. Now, Ben, I know that doesn't answer a lot of other questions, and, and we're gonna have to wrestle with that text sometime. But at the very outset, we need to say, where will the glory ultimately go, to me or to God? Yeah. That's now, when you think about this passage, obviously, it's, it's one of the more controversial yep. issues in Scripture. Uh, maybe not always amongst the, the regular people, but um, certainly amongst the theologians. Yeah. Uh, but how would you have people approach it? What, what would you say to people, this is how you should approach this passage for your own study? Well, I would simply say, uh, begin by saying, I'm going to have an open mind when I read. Okay. 
Uh, I'm not going to bring my own presuppositions into the text and say, I don't believe in predestination, so I, I'm not gonna believe that. Um, simply say, let God inform me. It's the word of God. Let it say what it, what, what it will and then allow your whole thinking to be shaped by what it says. I, I would say that always as a starting point of any scripture that we look at, but certainly of this one. And should we allow some room for mystery? Well, we're always going to have to, yeah. because we recognize, you know, I said that Romans 10 has this whole thing, the necessity of responding to the word that's preached, and yet Romans 9 has this election of God who enters into a voting booth and chooses us. Yeah. I think it's very important for us to hold to both of those truths and to let go of neither one of them. Uh, I think that's essential. Now, uh, in the next uh, week, you're going to be looking into the last section yeah. in the book of Romans. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, after all this great theology in Romans, yeah. uh, it gets awfully practical at the end. It's the application section, Romans 12 to 16. I love to call simply the lifestyle of the gospel on the basis of having been saved in Christ, how are we to live? And, and Romans tells us. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks again for joining us today on Truth and Life Today.